join me in Colossians chapter 1 this morning. Colossians chapter 1, we're looking at verses 15 through 20. The title of our sermon is The Preeminence of Christ, and our keywords for our worshipers in training are firstborn things and preeminent. If you're using the Blue ESV Bible, you can find that on page 983, 983. Well, I wonder what experiences you've had in your life that left you in absolute awe of what you were seeing or doing at the time. And we've all probably had experiences that were absolutely breathtaking, hard to capture in words or It's hard to believe, maybe at the time, that this is actually even taking place at all. What I have in mind is maybe something that you've studied or you've seen in pictures or thought a lot about, but then at some point you get to see it or experience it for the first time yourself. Maybe something like seeing the Great Wall of China or the Grand Canyon or Mount Kilimanjaro. I've had several of those experiences in my own life. One was when I visited the Jonathan Edwards Center in uh, the the Baniki Library at Yale University. I was with a small group of other pastors, and we went into the library, and they brought us down an elevator into this small room, sort of in this vault, this basement of this this library. And when we walked in this, this small room, there was these tables set up, and all on the tables were all of the works the original works of Jonathan Edwards. And as I walked in, I saw a letter sitting on the table that was written to Jonathan Edwards from George Washington. And then we walked around the corner and there was, there was Jonathan Edwards' miscellanies sitting there. And then I saw his blank Bible, the Bible he took and added pages into so that he could write his own notes. And we were able to flip through the pages and look at his notes. But then I saw what I really wanted to see, and I saw the original notes that Jonathan Edwards took with him into the pulpit when he preached, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. One of the most famous sermons in all of church history, and there I stood face to face with these, really, scraps of paper with little scribbles on them. Now, Jonathan Edwards preached at a time when it wasn't very favorable that you would have notes when you were preaching, and so he really couldn't preach well without notes, as far as I understand it, so he made them all on little scraps of paper, and these weren't any bigger than little three-by-four-inch scraps of paper that he would tuck into his Bible. And it was likely that he preached this sermon many different times in many different locations, but as I thought about this, (coughs) I remembered that this was a sermon I first encountered as a child. I, I read this in, in literature class in school, and, and some of you might remember that perhaps maybe 10 or so years ago here at Redeemer, I, I preached that sermon on a Sunday evening. It's a, a remarkable work from Jonathan Edwards, and there I was, staring at what he wrote on these small pieces of paper, and all I could think of was where that had been, how many times it had passed through his fingers, how many times he had preached this sermon, and what an amazing work that God had done, and revival having taken place in large part because of that sermon and and others just like it, others that were written on scraps of paper in that very room where I stood. It was an amazing opportunity. Another instance I can think of 
my senior year of high school. That year, my family lived in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I was going to school in Los Alamos, New Mexico, where the atomic bomb was invented through the Manhattan Project. Well, that year in the mountains there, the Forest Service was, was cleaning out the underbrush, and they do that by burning it out. Well, the winds picked up, and the fire got out of hand, and it burned up over the top of the mountain into the town, and everyone evacuated for several days while firefighters sought to put the fire out. It was called the Cerro Grande Fire. There were hundreds of homes that burned down, and you might imagine there was quite a lot of fear because all of it was so close to a nuclear facility and all that goes on in Los Alamos. But my dad's company had some, some work that they had to do as they went in there right after the fire burned everything up. I went with him, and we went in this community, and I got there, and I saw piles of rubble where houses used to stand, some of my friends' houses. And we saw where the fire was so hot that it had melted cars down to just a pile of metal. Nothing was going on, though. It was the strangest thing. No birds chirping, no crickets, nothing at all. It was just dead silent. It's something I'll never forget. I'll never be able to adequately describe that in words. And I I think about these kinds of moments in life. I've had others... I've been blessed to see some amazing things in my life already. And yet, what I'm brought back to remember when I put all these things into a bigger context is that all of these things, as amazing as they are, as much of a gift from God that they are, that we get to have these opportunities, all of them pale in comparison. They're not even worth comparing to the magnificence of Christ, the beauty of of Christ, the radiance of Christ, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the supremacy of Christ. I've stood on top of the Grand Canyon and had this breathtaking view. I've seen the Sahara Desert from the sky and and marveled at the vastness of the land. I've trekked through the snow in the Hindukush Mountains and have been humbled by their size and their force. I've touched the walls of the ancient city of Nineveh and have have been made to feel like a little speck on the timeline of human history. And yet all of these experiences in life, all of our experiences collectively put together in life, if you combine all of them, how amazing, how awe-inspiring, how breathtaking they are into one amazing experience, it wouldn't even come close to comparing to the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the thing that's so incredibly amazing about this to me is that you and I were made to know this Christ, to know Him as He truly is insofar as we are able. That's, what, that's why biblical doctrine is so important. We were created to comprehend as much as we are able of the supremacy of of Christ. And when we do that, the experience of awe, the experience of admiration and wonder and, and, and satisfaction and amazement, all of this that we're accustomed to in times of our life, it would be as nothing in comparison. One day, brothers and sisters, we will be face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ, our eternal God, the, the great creator and sustainer of all things, the one who died for you that you might live forever and ever with him. And by comparison, the, the Grand Canyon will be a hole in the ground and Mount Everest will be a hill of sand. We, all, we are all made 
to see and to delight and to rejoice and to enjoy and be astonished by and enraptured by the supremacy of Christ. And all that he is and all that we might experience of the breathtaking beauty of this life in communion with him. Nothing else compares. Nothing even comes close. And so as we continue looking at our series through Paul's letter to the church at Colossae this morning, we come to one of my favorite sections in all of Scripture. Here Paul gives a robust defense of the supremacy of Christ over all things. Now remember, Paul is is giving this positive defense of true Christianity against the teaching, the false teaching of Gnosticism. It was threatening the Colossian church at the time. And so here he's putting Christ in his rightful place at the top of his throne as the supreme being over and the creator of all of creation. This is Paul's full blast against Gnosticism. And in so doing, he gives us this remarkable reminder of who Christ truly is. So let's read together chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so imagine you enter into a new bookstore in Colossae. And as soon as you walk in, you've been to these bookstores, there's paintings, there's Precious Moments dolls, there's the Evangel Cube and the Testaments and the WWJD bracelets and all of the bad CDs on the rack. And you ask the clerk, do you have any books on the supremacy of Jesus Christ? And they're going to take you by the hand and lead you past the Thomas Kincaid paintings and all of the books about getting out of debt and the rows of books about leadership and the rows of books that are Amish vampire Christian teen fiction. (laughs) And in this small shelf in the back of this bookstore at the corner, there's a few books there about Jesus. Not how to use him, not how to get what you want out of him, just about Jesus Christ and his preeminence. And you see, that's the world we live in. We have to get past all of the many voices trying as they might to get us in touch with what the world calls our our spiritual side and realize that not everything that is supposedly spiritual is biblical. And not everything that is said to be spiritual is true or useful. We need to get beyond trying to be spiritual. In everything, we must begin with the preeminence of Christ, the supremacy of Christ in all things. Now remember, Paul is dealing with this Gnostic teaching, this idea that there's this super spirituality that we can attain with a secret knowledge. And if we just do the right things and have the right teachers, we one day can achieve all of that. And, and here Paul is taking us past all of these other voices, past all of these other things, and he's bringing us directly to the shelf with all the books about Jesus. 
Our lives, our families, our church, our work, our community, our conversations, our fellowship with one another, all of this, when we understand the supremacy of Christ in all things, we begin to live in light of that. And now we can, we can move past this idea that all of these other things are just as important. Now, some of them are important. Some of them are necessary. And some of these are things that we need to talk about and think about. But when we think first... And when we grasp first the supremacy of Christ in all things, all of our questions about staying out of debt or being a stay-at-home mom or, or being a good neighbor, all of these things begin to answer themselves. Now, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we can never grow tired or assume that we've learned all that we can learn about Christ's supremacy. As soon as we do that, every, every idea that we pick up on Everything that we read about, everything that we think about becomes rather useless and shallow. We must have Christ, and without Christ as He is, we have nothing. So, who is He? Paul's going to show us several things in the text this morning. The first we see in verses 15 through 17. Jesus Christ is the creator and sustainer of all things. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, notice that Paul begins this part teaching us about Jesus, and he doesn't begin with Jesus born of a virgin in Bethlehem, does he? That is wonderfully and gloriously true. However, Paul goes much further back than Jesus born as a man, and he deals instead with eternity past to present Jesus as God who has eternally existed in heaven. He is, verse 15, the image of the invisible God. Now, one of the difficulties through this passage is that we have to deal with some of the, the terms that Paul is using here. In fact, some of these terms that Paul is using to combat the teaching of Gnosticism have been used by other cults and twisted and and misrepresented in order uh, to, uh, to present Christ in a way different than the Gnostics did. But think about the language here. He is the image of the invisible God. That's interesting, isn't it? Remember what John wrote in John 1.18? No one has ever seen God. And if you Apply that idea that John gave us to the rest of the Bible, and particularly if we look into the Old Testament, it changes a lot of things that you, when you realize that, that no one has ever seen God, and yet people are meeting face to face with God in the Bible. What does that mean? How do we reconcile that? Well, John goes on to say, God, the only Son who is at the Father's side, has made him known. You see, Christ is all throughout the Scriptures. We see him all throughout the Bible, even in the Old Testament as as God's people are hearing from him, seeing him, communing with him. And Paul is telling us that Jesus is an, an image or a representation of God, but it goes beyond that because this idea of imaging God also suggests that the character of God is being imaged. In other words, he is revealing to us what God is really like. 
This is like what the writer of Hebrews expressed in chapter 1 and verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Only in Jesus has God made himself physically physically made known in a full and final way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was toward. The Word was face-to-face with. The Word was God, reflecting the Father, making Him known. This is why Jesus could say, He who has seen me has seen the Father. The Father has been made known to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you see, Jesus isn't some kind of lesser degree of God than the Father. He's not some creation of the Father. He's not the first rung on the the Gnostic ladder to God. No, Jesus is fully God. He's the image of God. He is what we were meant to be and were prior to the fall in many ways in terms of, of character. But you see, because Jesus is God. Because Jesus makes the Father known to us, because He is the exact imprint of your Father's nature, you and I don't have to be in fear of the Father as if it was because of the Son that the Father loves us. That's important. Listen, brothers and sisters, the Father doesn't love you because Jesus died for you. Jesus died for you because the Father loved you. That's important. It is because of God's love for you that he sent Jesus, he sent the Son, into the world to die. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And so you see that the Father's character and Jesus' character are one and the same, so you don't have two different things going on. You don't have these competing realities that we have a Father who is... Who is eternally disappointed with us, and the only reason he has anything to do with us is is simply, I shouldn't say simply, but because of the Son. The Father loved us, and because of that, he gave us the Son. And yes, we stand upon his righteousness. Yes, he has accomplished all that he has accomplished for us, and without him, we have none of it. And yet, the Father loved us, and so he gave him up for us. Now notice also in verse 15, Paul writes that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now there's a classic misreading of this text, you especially hear from the Jehovah's Witnesses, and that is to say that this must mean that Jesus was created. If he's the firstborn, that must mean that he's not eternal. Well, there's two things about that. First, this isn't about birth. This is about rights. In the first century, the firstborn was the one who inherited everything in the family. He's the rightful recipient of the the family estate and all of their treasures. So this is about what rightfully belongs to him as the heir of all things. But secondly, if this was about being born, then the rest of the verses wouldn't make any sense at all, would they? And we see in our text that, that it is by Jesus that all that exists came into being. So Paul's point is, not, is, is to make sure that the, the Colossian Christians, and certainly make sure that, that we don't look at anything that is lesser than Jesus as importantly as we see Jesus, who Jesus is and what Jesus always has been and what he has done. Don't look to angels. Don't look to the, to the saints. Don't look to other gods. Don't look to Jesus' mother, Mary. Jesus is the exact imprint of God and the inheritor of all things. It all belongs to him. 
He is supreme over all of it. That's what he means by that. He is the rightful heir of all things. Why? Because he created all things. And notice also in verse 16 that by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And so Jesus is presented to, uh, to us as the creator of all things, everything. Everything in heaven, everything on earth, the things we see, the things we don't see. Thrones of government, dominion over the land, the rule of the people, the authorities that are set in place. All of this created through Jesus, by Jesus, and for Jesus. Every star in every galaxy, every planet in the sky, and everything that they are comprised of, from the top of Mount Everest to the bottom of the deepest ocean, the planets, the animals, the microscopic parasites, everything that happens in the world, hurricanes, tornadoes, avalanches, floods, snow, rain, hot sun, We know a little bit about that. Diseases, medicine, every nation, every army, all of their leaders, they are brought up, they are struck down. All of our education, all of our learning, all of our intellect, all of our discovery, all of our exploration, the news, business, markets, finance, industry, trade, manufacturing, transportation, The internet, the way everything is disseminated from one part of the world to the other, every floating particle of dust, every grain of sand, even every H2O molecule that makes up the vast bodies of water in this earth and all that is outside of this earth, all that exists in galaxies yet undiscovered. Jesus created all of it, and it was through him, it was by him, it was for him, and it all belongs to him. But as amazing as that is, and it is amazing indeed, notice that Paul shows us that Jesus is also the sustainer of all things. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Listen, all, all, just think of this, this pulpit right here. It's, it's a big boy, there's no doubt about that. But All of the molecules that exist in this thing, that these pieces of wood, these, these fibers of wood, all of that is held together this very moment. By the word of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if for one single solitary second he were to stop sustaining it, it would fall away into complete nothingness. We all would. The entire universe would. So you see, you're not sitting here and and breathing and hearing and thinking because you're a vegan or because you ate your Flintstone vitamins or you did an extra few reps at the gym. Two of those things are not bad things. I'll let you decide the one thing I'm talking about. And my only hint is that God made animals for us to eat. But but the main reason, the main reason your heart is beating and there's breath in your lungs is because the Lord Jesus, who is supreme over all things, who has created you, he says so. That's it. You are allowed. You are allowed to breathe another breath. You are allowed to have another thought. You are allowed to live another second. There's this medieval painting, and it shows Christ in the, in the clouds. And apart from second commandment violations, you have this 
this picture, Christ in the clouds, and below him is, is the world of humans and, and all of nature. And from Christ, you see in this painting, there's this, this golden thread, this golden line from Christ that attaches to everything. And the artist is showing that Christ is responsible for sustaining the existence of every created thing. And so you see, brothers and sisters, Paul is telling the church in Colossae, Paul is telling you and I that this Jesus that we have come to trust in is also the creator who upholds it all by the word of his power. This is why scientists and academics and gardeners and engineers and and whatever it is that we do, that we're able to do what is done. The Lord Jesus sustains it. He has created it so that we can use it, we can explore it, we can understand it for his glory. Everything, friends, everything began with Christ. Everything will end with Christ. All things sprang forth from his command. All things will return to him at his command. He is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, and one day everything will be given up to him in ultimate glory. And since all of that is true, we should live completely onto him. Any other course is completely irrational for the believer, isn't it? Paul uses similar logic in Romans eleven thirty six. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. Glory be to him forever and ever. And then he calls us to a total commitment, which he concluded with your reasonable service. He said, as a result of this, your reasonable service as a believer is to live for Christ. It is meant to get us out of the small thinking of our small minds. It's intended to dominate our thinking and to change us. When we understand the fullness of what Paul is saying here, it is amazing that we should ever look anywhere else to find meaning or purpose in life. Since it is he who created us in love, it is he who sustains us in love, doesn't it follow that in his love he can fix the problems that are going on in our lives? Isn't it he who we should turn to when things seem upside down and backwards and out of order and a terrible mess for us? So often we tend to turn to our finite resources, our finite wisdom, our finite knowledge, our finite understanding. Instead of availing ourselves of the infinite goodness and the infinite mercy and the infinite love and the infinite wisdom and the infinite power and the infinite knowledge and the infinite glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, some of you this morning are only living on the finite because you have yet to submit yourselves to the one who is infinite. To the one who created and sustains all things, who calls you by faith to look to him that you might know him, that you might trust him, that you might love him, that you might forever dwell with him. And notice what Paul does here as he continues in the text in verses 18 and 19. He shows us that Jesus Christ is the preeminent one over all things. Again, we've been talking about this, we've discussed this, but verse 18 is really the summary of this whole passage's meaning. But we have this added nuance here. He says, he is the head of the body. He is the head of the church. It is Jesus. Not pastors, not elders, not the biggest givers, not the pope or a college of cardinals. It is Jesus who is the head of the body, his church. If every pastor in the world died tomorrow, the church would continue to be sustained and upheld and pressing against the gates of hell by the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the rightful inheritance from the Father given over to the Son 
for fulfilling his covenant responsibilities. The church was a covenantal promise from the Father, given to the Son as he completed his obligations, living a perfect life, dying a sinner's death, and being raised from the dead. And so the bride is given over to the bridegroom. The church is given over to the Son. And one of the major elements was that Jesus was raised from the dead. And Paul gets to that specifically here. He says he is, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. In resurrection power, Jesus has preeminence. He is the firstborn from among the dead. Right, the language, again, the firstborn, we're talking about inheritance and, and this inheritance that is his as a result of his resurrection. He's, he's in, an, in essence, he's broken through into this new reality of life after death. And in the same way, Jesus is, is stepping, he's stepping out of the tomb. He's stepping into this, this new place, this new reality that is now available because of him for all of us that by faith we too can step out of the tomb because he has defeated darkness. He's defeated the power of death. He has given us the greatest gift, the greatest promise, the greatest fulfillment for all of mankind. In 1893, <clears throat> the World Columbian Exposition was held in Chicago and over 21 million people showed up. And you think about that. In 1893, 21 million people showing up in the same place is quite a thing. Now, America was doing what America often does best and showing off to the rest of the world. But among the features of this exposition was what was called the World Parliament of Religions. And representatives of all the world's religions, they met together to share their best points and perhaps come up with a, a new world religion. And so the famous evangelist D.L. Moody, he saw this as a great chance for evangelism. He commissioned evangelists. He assigned them to preaching posts throughout the city. He used churches. He rented theaters. He even rented a circus tent. Now, Moody's friends wanted to attack this parliament of religions, but he refused. And he said, I'm going to make Jesus Christ so attractive that men will want to turn to him. And Moody knew the preaching of Christ was what it would be the preaching of Christ in his preeminence, the peerless, supreme, all-sufficient Christ clearly presented this would do the job. And surely it did. The Chicago campaign, it later became known as, in 1893 is considered to be the greatest evangelistic work of D.L. Moody. Thousands of people are reported to have come to Christ. That's exactly what Paul is doing here, isn't he? He's presenting Christ in the midst of all these competing voices, and specifically in, in light of this, this false teaching, this false understanding, he's presenting Christ as the one who has the first place in all of creation, in the church. He's preeminent over all things in all places and all times. The Gnostics had their own version of the parliament of religions because they considered Jesus to be only one of the thousands of lesser gods that you have to go through to get to the one true God. But as Paul presents Christ as he truly is, we have this great true description of the great God King who became man and holds power over all things. The power he held it's from eternity past, and the power and authority that he has, he will hold for all of eternity in the future. And so in, in light of all of this, Paul shows us the last thing in verse 20, that Jesus Christ is the perfect reconciler of all 
things. He reconciles to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Do you remember the great promise that was given, the promise of the new covenant given in Genesis 3.15? As God was cursing the serpent, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Brothers and sisters, this is it. This is Jesus Christ who has defeated Satan and death and has made peace with man through the blood of the cross. This is atonement. And as we talk about atonement, it certainly brings to mind the evil that sin is and the necessary wrath that God has toward that sin. But atonement calls to mind more than our sin. It calls to mind the unfathomable love of God to send His Son to take away our sins. The amazing grace of God to cover over our sins with the precious and perfect sacrifice of the blood of the Lamb of God who is Jesus Christ. The atonement is bloody business. There's no doubt about that. Countless animals were slaughtered to cover the sins of God's people. But the theme of Scripture, this this theme of atonement all throughout Scripture shows the blood of Jesus alone. And only the blood of Jesus can cover over and wash away completely the sins of God's people. Now, now recognize that this message of God's atoning love is not for us only. We are to call everyone everywhere to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, you and I, as God's people, to call the world to Jesus Christ. And few spiritual topics are are more divisive, but at the same time, few are more unifying than this issue of atonement. In God's church, amongst God's people, this is the one thing. Among all of the differences we may have with brothers and sisters, this is one of the one things that we all agree on. It is by the blood of Jesus that we are united. We are who we are in Christ. And a biblical understanding of the atonement unifies the church across tribes, languages, nations. Every time, every time that we gather with brothers and sisters in Christ, the true church, we are united by Christ's blood. And so here's what that means. What that means is that we understand that God has a perfect standard that is revealed in his law. And that standard is absolute perfection of heart and action and that God commands. However, there is not one man, there is not one woman, there is not one child alive who can achieve God's standard. And since the fall of Adam and Eve, every person everywhere has been born into a state of sin and misery. And yet that is all except for one man who is Jesus Christ, who was born of a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit, living a perfect, sinless, law-fulfilling life, fulfilling all righteousness in fulfillment of a covenant made with the Father, in fulfillment of centuries of prophecy. Jesus was hated. He was mocked. He was ridiculed by the people of his day. He was crucified on a cross of wood. A perfect, spotless, righteous, blameless man who is God was nailed to a cross and left to die. And while we think that what happened physically was horrendous, and certainly it was, what was going on spiritually was of even greater significance. 
The Father was pouring upon the Son all of the wrath reserved for you and I. All of the wrath for every one of our sons poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ. Wrath that you deserve. Wrath that I deserve. Every sin, brothers and sisters, every sin that has ever been committed must be paid for. And it will happen in one of two ways. Either you will pay for your sin for the rest of eternity, condemned and cast away from God in everlasting torment. Or Christ has paid the penalty for your sins already upon the cross. He has died in your place. And so what has happened is what we call the the great exchange. My sins placed on Christ for me. He has taken the wrath of the Father in my place. In exchange, his righteousness has been given to me that I will have a right standing before the Father, that I will be reconciled to the Father. My sins exchanged for his righteousness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, that in him him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the pivotal moment in all of history. God making a way that we would have peace with him. And Paul tells us in verse 20, peace with God came by way of the blood of his cross. Peace with God Think about that. Peace with God came only through the slaughter of the perfect spotless lamb in our place. That's atonement. That's covering. That's love. That is how God is reconciling all things to himself through Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean he will bring everyone to himself with or without faith. No, that means there is one ruler, there is one authority, there is one name under which every knee will bow the way, the truth, and the life. He will pacify, he will subdue all things under his mighty hand. And what about you? That's the question here. What about you? Will you submit under the powerful hand of Jesus Christ? Willingly now or unwillingly later? It will happen one way or another. But friends, if you're not in Christ, I want to commend him to you. That by faith you would come to Him, knowing Him as a loving, gracious, merciful Savior. He is one who the Bible says will not snuff out a smoldering wick, will not break a bruised reed. And if you come to Christ, He will not turn you away. When you die to yourself and you come to Christ to live upon Him, He will not turn you away. He will embrace you. He will love you. He will give you life everlasting. Brothers and sisters, you have been reconciled to this great, majestic Christ who is preeminent over all things in heaven and on earth, seen and unseen, past, present, and future. And so may he be pleased to continue to stir up a greater love and faithfulness in all of us, in all of our hearts for him, that he would be all the more glorified in his church among his people. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for your word this morning. We thank you for what you have shown us of the great supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. I pray, God, that as we, as we look to the week ahead, the days ahead, the months ahead that we have, whatever problems we may face, and surely they are to come, whatever trials that lay before us, whatever temptations we're, we're faced with that we might desire to succumb to. May we have the preeminence of Christ on our minds. May we have the supremacy of Christ in our hearts. 
May we be reminded of your word that we have what we have and we are what we are because of Christ. Christ who created all things. Christ who sustains all things. Christ who calls all things to fall before him in worship, in adoration, in submission. Not a harsh, unloving, angry submission. But a submission he calls us to in love, in mercy, in grace, and in ultimate sacrifice. I pray, O God, that this word of yours would be at work in our hearts. That in all my failings in bringing this word, that you might make correction in the hearts of your people, that they might walk faithfully and live faithfully upon the truth of the scriptures. And may you do it all for your glory, for the glory of the preeminent Christ. We pray this all in his powerful name. Amen.